Good evening. Appreciative of your presence here this evening and hope that our time together will be of value to us. And I have to tell you that it's a lesson that I'm excited about presenting and hope that it will be edifying and uplifting to all of us. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to the book of John and the second chapter. And I want us to look at verses 1 through 4 for a moment. John chapter 2, and beginning in verse 1, says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Jesus has really just begun his uh, ministry, and he is gathered a few disciples, and they're following along with him. And so he's going to this wedding feast, and so also are his disciples. Then verse 3, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You remember that he went on to change the water to wine, and his disciples knew about it, the servants knew about it. It's not real clear how many other people knew about it. But I'm interested in that statement, my hour has not yet come. And that's the title of our lesson, Jesus' Hour. I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider the word hour, even as it's found in the Gospels. Uh, according to my concordance or my computer, the word hour is used in the Gospel some 72 times in 65 verses. And the first thing that I want us to do this evening is kind of look at some of the ways that this word hour is used. And one of the things that we are told is, or one of the things we can determine is, that this is a numerical number, or it is used with a numerical number sometimes, indicating a specific time of day. I've given you a number of passages. It's not a complete list. And we'll not cover all of the passages even that are up there. But let me look at a couple of them with you that you can see what we're talking about. Look, if you would, to the book of John in the first chapter. I mentioned that Jesus was starting his ministry. If you go back to the book of John in the first chapter, you would see beginning in about verse 35, it says, again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples. Now this is happening before chapter 2, obviously. And John the Baptist is standing there with two of his disciples, looking at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. That is John the Baptist has seen Jesus, and he points to him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day, and then in parentheses it says, now it was about the tenth hour. And all he's doing is giving us a reference to time. That it's about the tenth hour. Jews counted time. They started with six. And so by 
figure correctly, it's probably about four in the afternoon as we would count time. But that's its purpose, is to give us some kind of, of idea as to what time it actually is. In the book of Matthew in the 20th chapter, in verses 3 through 14, Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard. There's a laborer or a man who goes out and he hires various laborers. He starts early in the morning and hires some. And then within the course of those verses, he tells us that he went out at the third hour of the day, uh, being about nine o'clock, hired some more. They went to work for him. He went out again the sixth hour of the day, hired some more. He went out at the ninth hour, hired some more. And then even the eleventh hour, he was talking and getting some people there. And again, all he's doing is references time. That's what that hour is doing, giving us a specific time of day. And in that parable, you can see that the time is progressing and the day is going on. Uh, look also, if you would, to the book of John in the 19th chapter and verse 14. We have progressed in the story of Jesus, of course, by turning this far over. But John 19 and verse 14 says, Now it was the day, or now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. This is when he is before Pilate, and he's telling us at this time of day, then Jesus was before Pilate, and he said, Behold your king. I just referencing time for us as uh, we see it. Look back, if you would, to the book of Matthew in the 27th chapter for a moment. Uh, verse 45 and 46. This is after the passage we just read where Pilate has, has said something about uh, uh, that. But uh, 27 verse 46 says, About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so again, now you just simply have that, that here's the time, about the ninth hour, Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, one other passage, maybe look at the book of Luke, and the 23rd chapter. Again, the same time frame it pretty much as we were just looking at dealing with the crucifixion of Jesus. But in chapter 23 and verse 44, it says that now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was torn, and Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And so you've got Jesus being put on the cross. And then you see it turning dark from about the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And then at that ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, and then Jesus passes away. And all of those are just mentioning the word hour, but there's a number given with it, and it just gives us a specific time. A second thing you will find is that, that it's used of unspecified number or time, but with a limited time. Uh, a couple of examples of this. Look, if you would, to the book of Matthew and the 14th chapter. And look at verse 15, if you would. Matthew 14 and verse 15. Uh, he says, When the evening his disciples came to him, saying, 
this is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. On this occasion, Jesus had moved, and a crowd had followed him, and and it was getting late, and they were they were concerned about these people eating, and the disciples were saying, maybe we need to send them away. Again, you have the word hour used, but he doesn't give us a specific number for that hour, so we really don't know what time it is. But we do know that it's getting later. It's, it's progressing in the afternoon. Uh, the same thing when you look at the book of Mark and the 11th chapter. And look at verse 11. He says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he looked around all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany and with the twelve. This was the time that Jesus was... Uh, getting close to the end of his life, he would come into the, the temple or come into Jerusalem and then go out to Bethel or Bethany. And on this occasion, he's come in, and now it's late, and he leaves again. And we know from the, the writing that it's getting late, but we don't know the, ex, uh, the express time or the specific time that is used. A third way that we can see this used uh, it is used to show the quickness of an event. Uh, it doesn't really carry with it a certain time, but you know that whatever is taking place from the word hour and the way it's used, that it was something that was taking quick or taking place quickly. Go back again to the book of John and the fourth chapter. And look at verse 53. Sorry to say I had the wrong passage. Maybe if I turn to the right passage, it'll read better. He says, So the Father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus had said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. On this occasion, a man had brought Jesus, or had come to Jesus, and wanted Jesus to go with him to heal his son. And Jesus didn't go with him. He just saw his faith, and he says, Because of your faith, your son's healed, and told him to return. And so the man goes, and he meets the servant, or finds his servant, and when he does that, uh, he asks what time it was, and when he hears, he knows that that's the, the time that Jesus had spoken that. And the significance of it is, it shows that Jesus was working miracles, that he was standing here, told somebody in a different place that they would be healed, and they were healed. And there wasn't enough time that passed that they could just get better. When I was in Fort Smith, I went to a service one time where they were supposedly working miracles. I saw this lady come up that had some problems, and the guy spoke to her, and she kind of wobbled off, still looking the same. And he says, she just needs some time now. Well, that's not the way Jesus worked miracles. The working of the miracles by Jesus was instantaneous, and that's what... He was trying to show us this word when he said that the hour, or that very same hour, uh, he had showed himself to be healed. You see it again, and uh, look in the book of Matthew, if you would, verse 8, or chapter 8, and verse 13. Here the centurion has a servant that is sick, and he's come to Jesus about healing him. And Jesus 
is marveling at this man's faith, and because of his faith, he said, go your way, and you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Again, we're not given an hour. The specific time is not what matters. It's the fact that it had happened so quickly that people would know that it is a miracle. That was the significant part of it. Uh, let's go on further. And let me suggest to you that it also is used to suggest the reality of an event, but emphasizing the event, not the specific time of the event. You know that it's going to happen, and because it's happening, it's going to be at a time. And so they refer to it as the hour, but the hour is not what's really important. Look, if you would, again, to the book of John and the fourth chapter. And this time you're, you're dealing with Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And you remember the conversation that they'd had about uh, where you worship. And Jesus says it's time coming when, when it's not going to matter where. Uh, so if you look at John 4 and verse 53, it says, uh, no, that's not the one. John 4 and verse 23, I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus says, now John was baptizing. Still not right. Let me try again. John 4 and verse 23. Okay. Uh, he's talking to the woman. Go back to verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain or nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Your worship or you worship what you, you do not know. We worship what uh, what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. He's not interested in a, a specific time. He's interested in the event. And he says it's going to be a, an event of reality. There's going to be a time when it's not going to matter uh, where you are that worships, it's just going to be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And so he's trying to show us that it's an, a, an event of reality, and yet what's really important is the event, not the specific time that we're talking about. Now, I want to suggest to you also that uh, this is much the same way that our text is used in John 2 and verse 4, that he says, my hour has not yet come. There's something coming, and it will happen in reality. But the time of that event, that's not the real importance of it. What's really important is the event itself. And so what I want us to do now is turn our thoughts to this idea that, that we've got an event coming. It's going to happen. It's going to be a, an event that's in reality. And it'll happen at a certain time, but we're not as interested in that time as we are in the event. And I think if we go back through the Gospels and look at Jesus' hour, uh, you can find out exactly what this hour is that Jesus is talking about. Uh, we mentioned the book of John in the second chapter in verse 4. His mother has come to him and asked him to change the water to wine or to, to fix the, the uh, lack of wine. He does it by changing water to wine. But he answered her and says, my time or my hour has not yet 
come. What does that mean? Well, look again, if you would, to the book of John, this time the seventh chapter, and look, if you would, at verse 30, John 7 and verse 30. And therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform? Uh, One more time, missed the passage. John 7, beginning in verse 30. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Now there are several things interesting in this chapter, if you were to go back and look at it. In the beginning of chapter 7, it doesn't mention the word hour, but he talks about the time in much the same way. Uh, His brothers are going to the feast of the tabernacle, which was at hand. And his brothers, in verse 3, therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into the Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one has or does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is already come. So he speaks of the fact that his time, and not using the word hour, but he speaks of the fact his time has not yet come. If you know the rest of the story there, they go on to Jerusalem, Jesus waits, and then he later goes to Jerusalem at this feast time. And while he is there, he begins to teach, and people begin to question, uh, who is this? How does he know all these things? And some of the Pharisees and scribes are already beginning to be jealous and envious of him, and they're concerning him, and so they, they're talking about putting him to death. But at this time, our text said that they didn't touch him. And the reason was, it was not yet his time. And so they're not bothering him, and it's not yet his time. Continue on, if you would. Look at this time to the book of John in the 8th chapter, and verse 20. These words spoke Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hold on him, for his hour had not yet come. Very much like what we just read in chapter 7, but now telling us, It still is not the time. Wherever he is at that point in time uh, in his ministry is not his time yet. But now look over, if you would, another time. Go to chapter 12 and verse 23 this time. Chapter 12 and verse 23. It says, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now notice the difference. Before it's, it's my hour hasn't come. But now he's saying the hour has come. And he tells us kind of what he has in mind. He says it's an hour that the Son will be glorified. Go ahead and read verse 24 also. It will help you get understanding, I think. He said, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And then he talks about he who loves his life and yet loses his life will hate his life in this world, uh, hates his life in this world, and will keep it in eternal life. And so you see now he's talking about an hour that's somehow associated with being glorified, 
and then the reference afterwards about grain dying and then bringing forth fruit would give you the idea that he's talking also something about his own death. That that's how this is all going to come about. Uh, look again a little further down. Look at chapter 12 and verse 27 now. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, this hour that he's been talking about. He said, should I, should I ask God to save me, my Father to save me? He said, for this purpose came to this, for this purpose I came to this hour. And so he's saying, this hour that we're talking about, this is what I've been working toward and what I've been coming for the whole time, he says. Uh, and so you can see now pretty much that what we've come to is that this hour is the time that he's going to die. Look over, if you would, to chapter 13 and verse 1 now. He said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice now he says, He knows that his hour has come. He, he realizes that this is the time for which he's come to. Uh, continue on. Look at John 16, verse 32 now. Uh, Indeed, the hour is coming, yet has not come, or has now come, uh, that you will be scattered each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. This is as Jesus has is talking with his disciples. And he says, the hour has come. And, and all the other things it means, he says it means you're going to, to be scattered. You're going to leave me. And yet he says, I'm not alone because God is with me also. Uh, John 17, in verse 1, he says, Jesus spoke the words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may, be, may glorify you. So here's the, the, the crutch of it, really. He's come to this time. He's, he's now uh, been with his disciples. He goes in the garden and prays, and just a few of them with him. And now he says, the hour has come, and that's the hour in which your Son will glorify or be glorified and will glorify you. And again, we've, we've pointed out that, just pretty much pointed out that this is his death that he's talking about, and even beyond that, to his glory, where he'll be received of glory. Now, we have gotten the idea of what this means when we talk about the hour, and just how it can be used, and now what it means when we're talking about the hour of Jesus, that he's talking about the time that he would be crucified and then eventually raised and glorified in that way. So here's what I want to do now. I want us to go back and look, if we can, uh, to some observations about this death of Jesus. Now, I really want to make three things point out. One, I want you to understand that his hour was an appointed hour. I think we get that as you're reading this when he starts out by saying, it's not my hour yet. He knew that it wasn't time. And then as he goes on, he sees it coming closer and closer. 
He knows that there's a time coming. And finally says, now's the time. You remember when, when Satan tempted Jesus in the book of Matthew in the fourth chapter is recorded there. And one of the things Satan said was, uh, it's written in the scriptures, the angels will take charge of you. You'll not dash your foot against the stone. Why don't you just jump off the temple and show us that, that God will take care of you, that he'll keep his word. And he's quoting from the book of Psalms, Satan is on that. Well, Jesus was not supposed to be tempting God. He should have been trusting God and did trust God and answered Satan by saying it's written that you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. That passage in Psalms that he's talking about is saying that nothing was going to accidentally happen to Christ. Christ wasn't going to get run over by a chariot while crossing the street sometime. That wasn't what his purpose was. His purpose was coming to die on the cross. And so that's what he was coming for, and that was his purpose. And it was at an appointed time. And so we know that there was a time appointed when he would die. And, and so that happens on that occasion, or comes to that point. And so it's an appointed time that we're talking about. The second thing that I want you to note, though, is that you're going to get two for one, I think. Uh, this, you're going to get is that his hour involved suffering and shame. The very idea of crucifixion was involved suffering. Uh, crucifixion was brutal. Uh, it was almost inhumane or would be considered inhumane and was meant to be an example to anyone else that the pain and suffering and, and hope to discourage anybody from doing anything uh, that might incur the Romans' wrath and them be crucified is the idea. But not only that, but there was shame uh, connected with the idea of crucifixion. I want you to go, if you would, to the book of Galatians in the third chapter for a moment. And I want you to look, if you would, under, beginning in about verse 10. Galatians 3 and verse 10. There's a couple of points I want you to see while we're here. Galatians 3.10, he says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Now, he's talking to people that had in times past been under the law. These now have come out of the law. But he's writing to these people and, and trying to encourage them to hold to Christ and not go back under the law. And so he makes the point, as many as are under the law is under a curse. Now, here's that curse. He said, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The curse with the law is, if you don't do everything just like the Lord said do, you're going to be destroyed. That's what the curse of the law was. Cursed is everybody that doesn't continue in all things. Then he says, but that one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, or, or no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, or the just shall live by faith. Then he says, Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Then he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's one curse now. And, and he's redeeming us from that curse where we don't keep everything we're, we're henceforth condemned. He says, Having become a curse for us. So Christ is redeeming people from the curse of the law. That you're doomed if you don't keep it all. He's redeeming us from that. And he's doing so by becoming a curse. And notice it's not the curse of the law that he doesn't 
keep the law perfectly. It is the curse that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And so uh, it is a shameful death. And it's one that was considered to be a curse. And what he's saying is Christ went to the cross. He died on that cross. And by dying on that cross, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. Uh, We can now not keep the law perfectly, and yet still, because of faith, be saved. And that had to be by his death. Now, there's some, I think, that want to get more out of the cross than what is really there. Uh, I've been in studies before where people begin to talk about the cup that Jesus Jesus drank. And, and you remember that he talks about in one of his prayers, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And some have said, well, why did he dread that cup so much? And they answer and say, well, uh, that's because he knew that he was bearing uh, our sins and he was going to be separated from God. And that's what frightened him so much. Not the actual death of the cross, but the idea that he was going to be separated from God. But I want you to to look at this. Uh, Look, if you would, to Luke 22 and 44, first of all. This is the passage I referenced where he says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He rose up from the prayer and he had had uh, to the disciples, uh, back up a little bit, 42. He says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not your will, but my will, or not my will, but your will be done. And then he goes and we see the agony of this cup that he's going to have to bear. But is that something more than just the shame of the cross and and the death that he's talking about? Look over to the book of Mark and the sixth or uh, Mark the tenth chapter, I think is where I'm wanting. Be easier if I could read my writing. Look at Mark 10 and verse 36. And the disciples, on this occasion, James and John are arguing about, uh, are trying to get him to say, put one of us on the right hand, put one of us on the left. So it said, then then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatsoever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now remember, he would just mention that. We read where he he was dreading that cup. And he says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. Now, if there's some hidden meaning to this cup that Jesus is drinking, where he's being separated from God, then he's saying, you apostles are going to be separated too. And that's not the case. They would suffer and they would die, just as Jesus did, not the same kind of death all the time. Some of them perhaps did, but not the same kind. And yet, It's not that, it's just the death. It's nothing beyond this 
physical death that he's talking to them about that they would handle, and that's what he had suffered. He suffered that physical death. And then some will look at the statement in Matthew 22 when he talks about, or Matthew 27, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And they say, well, uh, God left him. God forsook Jesus, and that's where all of the agony came from. I don't think you can find that in the Scripture. This is a quotation from the psalmist, and the psalmist starts out by saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But by the end of the, the psalm, you find out God hadn't forsaken him. That maybe it looked like it just on appearance and so forth because of the suffering, but God had not forsaken him. And so that psalm is not teaching him that or teaching us that God had forsaken him on that occasion. In fact, uh, just listen for a moment, and if it really meant God had forsaken him, uh, what would these people think? It says in verse 41, I'm in Matthew 27, Likewise the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And even the robbers, they tell us, do the same thing. And so in about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabathani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They've just accused or said, uh, God doesn't really care about him. If, if God cares about you, get him, let him get you off the cross. If Jesus had just said, well, God, you have forsaken me, he would be saying, they're right. And I don't really have the relationship that I have with you. That's not the intent and purpose. Probably the idea is that he could quote that first line and then quote the end line, it is finished, and they would recognize that Though it might look like he has been forsaken, he is not forsaken. Let me suggest to you also, there are a couple of passages that would go against the idea that Jesus was separated from God, and some even go so far as to say that he spent time, a uh, short time in Hades or in hell, not Hades, but in hell, uh, Gehenna, or the, the, certainly the punishment part of Hades. Look at John 16 and verse 32. We read this a while ago when we went through the passages on the hour. But I want you to see this point in particular. Uh, Jesus says, Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has come, or has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. He's talking to his disciples. He says, The hour is coming, has come. You're going to scatter and you're going to leave me alone. And then he says, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Did the Father leave him? He said he wasn't. He, he said he wasn't going to leave him. Uh, look over to the book of John in the 8th chapter, in verse 28 and 29. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said... Uh, that it was thunder, others said, an angel has spoken. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. And, and what he's telling us is that Jesus, uh, verse 29, that, that, or the, that the Father is with him and is glorifying him. He didn't desert him or didn't leave him. 
And so God didn't leave him. Uh, and some of our songs are bad about telling us how God turned his head away from Jesus or how that he was separated from him. And that's not the scriptures. That's men that have written these songs and we need to be careful about singing them. And we can cry out that we need some uh, poetical license, but poetical license doesn't give you the right to teach something that's false. And we need to remember that. One other thing that is oftentimes used, it says, well, he bore our sin. Second uh, Peter 2.24 says he bore our sins. Uh, that is a quotation from the book of Isaiah in the 53rd chapter, if you want to turn over there for just a second, Isaiah 53. And look down to about verse uh, 5. He says he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, chastisement of our peace is upon him, and by his stripes we are healed, and so forth. That's where he's quoting from, telling us by his, or the, he bore our sins. And so somebody says, well, see, he had to take the sins on us. He had to become sinful. Well, look back just a little bit before that. Look at Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he has borne our grief. Now, that's fulfilled, we're told, in Matthew the 8th chapter in verse 17, or there's a reference there that does that. And it says in Matthew 8, 16, And when evening had come, they brought him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed them who were sick, that it may be said, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, he himself took our infirmities, or he bore our sicknesses. My question is, did he have to become sick to make us well or to make those people well? And by the same token, does he have to become sinful in order to make us uh, whole and, and free from our sins? Or is it just that he gave us a way and a method of being free from our sicknesses back then and he gives us a way of being free from our sins now? And one other passage to consider some look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 where he says he was made to be sin and say, well, see, he was made sinful. Well, most will agree that that would be better translated and if they translated it consistently in other places as they did in other places, it would be he became a sin offering for us. And when you turn to Hebrews, that's what you find that Jesus was an offering for us. Not that he became sin for us, but that he was an offering for sin. Look at Hebrews, the ninth chapter, and verse 22 for a moment. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with the blood, and with the, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. What cleansed us? It was the blood of Jesus. Hebrews, the tenth chapter, or, or, and, and verse 2, uh, he talks about, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the thing, can never with these same sacrifices which were continually year by year make those uh, who approach perfect, for then would they have not uh, have ceased to be offered. But the worshiper, once purified, would have no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sin. So he goes on to talk about how that Christ was our offering. He made the offering for us. It wasn't that he took our sins from the standpoint that he became sinners, our sinner, but that he gave his life and made the sacrifice and through his blood 
we're cleansed is the idea. Then the, the last point that I want you to see is that it was necessary for our salvation. Uh, we could go back to Hebrews 10 and verse 11, or verse 22 again. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We see throughout the, the gospel, and we were reading those hours, that this had to be, that except he be glorified or, or die, uh, he wouldn't be glorified. He had to die, he had to be raised, and that's when he was glorified and ascended back into heaven, and that's the way it is with us. Uh, we, we get our salvation through Jesus, and it was necessary for him to die. Uh, and that's the hour that he's talking about, that hour that he died, gave his blood for us, and then going on to the resurrection when he was raised, and therefore able now to save us even. We talked about Jesus's uh, death. How that it was an appointed time. It was a time that, uh, or was involved some sickness and or some suffering and shame, but it was necessary. I want you just to think very quickly about our death. It's an appointed time. Hebrews nine talks about how that it's appointed unto man once to die and then come at the judgment. Now, I don't mean by that that God has determined a specific time that we're going to die, but he has said this is the way of all men, that they die. The only way we'll miss that is if we should be alive when Christ comes again. And so we have an appointed time in which we're going to die. It may be and may involve some, some sickness and some suffering. I remember I had a Bible teacher, uh, even when I was at home growing up, that I remember something he said one time, and I've thought about it a lot. He said, not sure men fear death as much as they sure fear how they might die. And maybe that's a lot of, of what our concern is sometimes. Not that we're so afraid of death, but how are we going to die? Can we stand the, the suffering that might come with it? But we've got God to help us, and we can do it. And then I want you to know that that death is necessary. Look over to the book of 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter. And Paul's talking about the resurrection, on, of our resurrection at that occasion. And look, listen to verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has been or has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then we shall be brought to the past. The saying is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he goes on to say, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? And he says, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point that I want you to, to go out with. That Jesus is our Lord in Christ. And that he came and he walked this earth knowing all the time that, that he would die in the end. That that was his hour to die. And he suffered that, even though it was hard for him to suffer, or he knew it was suffering uh, suffering and, and shame, but he went through that. 
And he was willing to do that so that our sins could be forgiven. And his blood cleanses us of our sins. If you're here this evening and you've not been cleansed by the blood of Christ, then why not let this be your hour where his hour takes care of you? And if you've done that but yet yielded to sin again, his blood will still cleanse you. Let this be the hour that you're cleansed of your sin by his hour. You're subject in any way and we can assist you. We invite you to come as together stand and sing.